Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Good morning. Welcome to the Daily Football Briefing from The Athletic. It's Thursday, the 7th of September. I'm Michael Bailey. And today we're asking... Can anyone beat Lionel Messi to the men's Ballon d'Or? Erling Haaland, what an incredible season he had. What, 52 goals in a treble? What has happened to Hugo Lloris? We believe his priority is still to play, so he's not really interested in just earning big money. And after a difficult start to the season... What's gone wrong for Newcastle United? Bruno Guimaraes and Jalinton are maybe just slightly off their levels of last year. This is the Daily Football Briefing with Michael Bailey. We are a step closer to knowing who will win two of the most prized individual awards in world football. The Ballon d'Or is handed to the best men's and women's player in the game and this year's shortlists were revealed on Wednesday evening. 30 women have been nominated, with Aitana Bonmati, one of six representing World Cup winners Spain. There are four of England's finalists in there too, including Georgia Stanway and goalkeeper Mary Earps, as well as Australia's Sam Kerr and US forward Sophia Smith. As for the 30-strong men's list, that is led by seven of Manchester City's treble winners, while four make the cut from Argentina's World Cup success in Qatar. Among them, captain and Inter-Miami forward Lionel Messi, who has won the men's Ballon d'Or a historic seven times. There have been a few guises since it was first launched in 1956, but in its present form, the Ballon d'Or is still presented by the French magazine that founded it, France Football. It is judged on players' exploits over a season rather than the calendar year, and it is voted for by journalists representing nations from the higher end of FIFA's rankings. The respective successors to Barcelona's Alexia Puteas and former Real Madrid striker Karim Benzema will be unveiled at a ceremony in Paris at the end of October. The excellent Felipe Cardenas is a US-based football writer for The Athletic and he joins us now. Felipe, the Ballon d'Or shortlists are out. In terms of the men's award, is it hard to look beyond Lionel Messi as its winner? What an interesting question, right? I, I think it is. It's based obviously on what he did at the last World Cup. He won the World Cup. He won the trophy that he didn't have. And he, as as they say, he completed football, right? It was the one trophy that he needed to win to really be considered the best of all time. You know, I think that's subjective, but many believe that's it. That's all he did. That's all he had to do. And so, yes, I, I think it's his to lose based on that. We're coming off a World Cup year and, and that means a lot. Now, if you look at Erling Haaland, what an incredible season he had. And he has every right to claim that. What, 52 goals in a treble? I mean, that that's that's incredible as well. And so I, I think it'll come down to those two. But Lionel Messi's clearly in the driver's seat to win that eighth Ballon d'Or, even though he said, and I was in the room when he said it, this was in Fort Lauderdale a couple of weeks ago. He gave his first press conference with uh, as an Inter-Miami player. And he was asked about it, actually from a Spanish journalist, which was interesting if he's 
thinking about winning that that eighth Ballon d'Or, and he said it's not an award that he gives a lot of importance to. He knows it's prestigious, but he's not thinking about it. He was smiling the whole time he was answering that question. I think he would really, truly love to win his eighth Ballon d'Or. That's just me. I think he would love it. The discussion there between Erling Haaland and Lionel Messi kind of, sort of sums up this next question as well, because it must be hard to compare international successes with club successes. What, what does the history of the Ballon d'Or tell us about that one? There are several players. This is a 67-year-old award that that have won this uh, the Ballon d'Or, I think, based solely on what they've done with their national teams. And that can go back to, to the 70s. Johan Cruyff, I know he was one of the perhaps the best player in the 70s. Uh, he won it in 74, and that was the same year that the Dutch lost in the final, uh, in the World Cup final, 1974. There are several players like that. You can look at Luka Modric, you know, tw- 2018, considered by far the best midfielder in the world, but also you know, took a very unheralded Croatia side to the final of the World Cup and, and losing that World Cup to France. Fabio Cannavaro, you know, the Italian defender, a central defender winning the award in 2006, the same year, obviously, that Italy won that World Cup. And you could argue that he was considered the best defender in the world. So I think there are there are several instances where national team performances do play a part. But I think, it, you know, when you ask anyone on the street, perhaps they're going to think of a player's club performance over that last year. It was January that France captain and goalkeeper Hugo Lloris announced his retirement from international football. That was following their Qatar World Cup final defeat to Argentina. Tonight, France will look to make it five wins out of five in their Euro 2024 qualifying campaign when they host the Republic of Ireland. But things have been much trickier for Lloris. The 36-year-old remains a Tottenham Hotspur player, but you have to go back to April for the last time he played in a senior competitive fixture. With no move materialising during the summer transfer window, Lloris now faces being omitted entirely from Ange Postacoglu's Premier League squad, meaning he will be left to watch from the sidelines for the rest of the year. James Moore is commissioning editor at The Athletic and a regular on the View from the Lane podcast. James, how has it come to this for Hugo Lloris? The straight answer really is just a loss of form last season. Spurs were always going to be looking for a new number one this summer, long before and Postacoglu arrived at the club. Lloris made he made quite a few high profile errors last season. You probably remember, you know, games like Arsenal and Newcastle, like high profile errors in high profile matches that, that Spurs then lost. He was last seen at half time at St James's Park being being hooked with Spurs five 0 down. Official line there was that he was injured, uh, we should say. But yeah, hasn't been seen since then. So it wasn't a surprise to see him sort of out of contention at Spurs. But for him to not find a move and to kind of be stuck now in limbo, uh, I don't think that was something we did expect. That's the curious thing, I suppose. I mean, I'm assuming there were offers on the table during the summer for him to move somewhere else. And and if there were, why didn't he? Yeah, so as we understand it, he, right at the start of the summer, he had at least one offer from Saudi Arabia that would have enabled him to treble his wages. But we believe his priority is still to play. So he's not really interested in just earning big money. He wants to be number one somewhere in Europe, really. So he's battered away these offers, both both from Saudi Arabia, which he sees as a league that's maybe below him, as we understand it up to now. And then clubs towards the end of the window, I think people have heard about offers from Newcastle, where, again, you would probably expect him to be number two behind behind Nick Pope. And also Nice, which is a hometown club. But we think that came slightly too late in the day, that he was a bit unsettled by the idea of having to rush into making this decision right at the end of the window. You know, he's got like his wife and three young children who have 
basically only known living in London, his kids. So it's not really an easy decision to make. So he's ended up now, we believe, not going to be registered for the Premier League. Spurs are already out of the League Cup. There is no opportunity for him to play any football at Tottenham before the start of January. And it, it feels like a bit of a sort of unusual situation for a player who's standing. You know, he's playing in the World Cup final what, nine months ago. And now he's going to be in a situation where he's stuck without any football to play at all. Which does, I suppose, beg, beg the question, what happens next? It does all feel sad for a player who has played more than 400 games for Spurs as well. A, a really sad end to that. Yeah, I mean, he's right up there in terms of like appearances all time for Spurs. And, you know, he was captain the club for a long time, has been you know, captain the club to, to a Champions League final four years ago, which is something I don't think many people thought they would see. So, yeah, it feels like a really sort of underwhelming end, really. I mean, the idea that he would lose his place in the team after those mistakes and, and then kind of, you know, move out through the back door over the summer was bad enough. But now the idea he'd kind of linger now, as everyone is kind of celebrating the arrival of Postacoglu in a new style of football, everyone's excited and they're playing well, scoring goals. And he's just going to kind of be stuck there at training. I mean, we understand he's, tra- he's turning up for training on time and he's training well and, and all of that stuff, but... He won't be playing any matches. And it is, yeah, it feels, it's quite an unsatisfying end to him, I think. To go deeper with events at Tottenham, make sure you check out James Moore and the rest of the crew on The View from the Lane podcast. You'll find it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Daily Football Briefing from The Athletic. If the international break offers a short moment for reflection, then no club may be keener to take advantage than Newcastle United. Last season, rejuvenated under controversial Saudi Arabian ownership, Eddie Howe's side reached the League Cup final and finished fourth in the Premier League, booking them a Champions League spot and breeding even greater expectations this season. However, an opening 5-1 thrashing of Aston Villa at St James's Park has been followed by three defeats and some curious glances at what is happening on Tyneside. Jacob Whitehead writes about Newcastle United for The Athletic and is in the midst of publishing his assessment of what has gone wrong so far. And I'm delighted to say he joins us now. Jacob, let's start with the obvious question, although I'm not sure it's possible to answer it in 60 seconds. What has gone wrong for Newcastle so far this season? It's quite a difficult one because it's hard to see whether this is a team who have actually regressed or they're kind of harmed by the fact they've played such good teams this season. I mean, they've had Man City, they've had Brighton, They've had Liverpool and the game they won was against Aston Villa. That's four of the best seven sides in the league. Their levels have dropped slightly, particularly in midfield, where they're trying to implement Sandro Tonali, who's a big money signing, but still kind of getting used to his role. And Eddie Howe has told you that a little bit. He hasn't been helped in acclimatising by the fact that Bruno Guimaraes and Jalinton are maybe just slightly off their levels of last year, slightly slow to the ball and Newcastle are missing a little intensity. And when that happens against the top, top sides, you're going to be punished. That said, they should have beaten Liverpool. And so almost a real test will be the next month when they're playing teams who are probably more amongst the league average. What is it that surprised you about Newcastle's situation, Jacob? I think it was probably the first game, which it's unsure whether it's a full storm or whether that is the real Newcastle. I mean, they looked absolutely brilliant against Aston Villa. 5-1 on the first day of the season and... They're playing with real bravery in possession and it's that which we've missed so far. Last year, they were so good psychologically and mentally. There was no real slips of concentration uh, when they had the ball, their verticality and speed with it. And that's kind of what's been missing in the last game. Um, George Colkin, my colleague, actually wrote, Newcastle's identity was their intensity, now it's hesitancy. 
is that which has really surprised me. That said, I mean, Eddie Howe and Jason Tindall now have an international break for a week and a half, and that's really come at a good time for them because you can imagine that those two are going to get in a bunker and try and draw a few new things up. But there's also more players uh, in the transfer window who haven't quite been implemented yet. The new fullbacks, Tina Livermento and Lewis Hall, and Harvey Barnes on the left hasn't started yet. So there are options. It does also sound like there is hope there for Newcastle supporters that, that things will come good in the end this season. Yes, of course. Small sample size luckily comes to Newcastle's rescue, as well as, as I said earlier, I mean, just the pure quality of the opposition. I mean, of course, when you're playing Manchester City, they're sending runners at you from every corner of a pitch. You're going to find it quite difficult to look good. Hopefully, there's going to be a groove they can get into. And as Sandro Tonali adapts, it's not purely on him, of course. It's the rest of the midfield. They just need to play together more. If they get used to it, other teams, of course, have that as a problem. They've overcome it. But Newcastle last season were quite streaky. They'd lose a few games and then go on these massive winning runs. There's no reason why that can't happen this year. The International Breaks television schedule hits its straps today, led by the qualification campaign for Euro 2024. Kazakhstan hosts Finland from 3pm in the UK or 10am in the US, followed by Lithuania versus Montenegro from 5pm UK time or 12pm Eastern. You'll find those games on Fireplay Sports 1 in the UK and Fox Sports 2 in the US. The choice widens at 7.45pm in the UK, which is 2.45pm Eastern, when you'll find France against the Republic of Ireland on Viaplay Sports 2 and Fox Sports 2, Netherlands take on Greece on Viaplay Extra, while Northern Ireland travel to Slovenia on Viaplay Sports 1. Earlier in the day, those of you in the US will be able to catch Ghana's Africa Cup of Nations qualifier at home to the Central African Republic from 12pm Eastern on BN Sports. And finally, there is Wales Friendly at home to South Korea. That one kicks off at 7.45pm in the UK, available to watch on BBC iPlayer and Viaplay. That's all for today's briefing. Thank you for listening. I've been Michael Bailey. Your producers were Michael Zimmerman and Abby Patterson, and executive producer was Ian McIntosh. If you're with us for the first time, tap the follow button on your podcast app and tell your friends about us too. Adam Leventhal will be with you tomorrow morning. Until then, have a great day. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code The Athletic, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a fifteen hundred dollar first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.